Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast was funded by the Wellcome Trust, Chartered College of Teaching, and listeners like you. If you like our podcast and want to support our efforts to spread the science of learning, please check out our Patreon, where we're posting exclusive content for our supporters. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes to show your support. We're here in London at the early conference with Jane Emerson. And so Jane, if you could introduce yourself, maybe explain a little bit about your background, your your area, your career, and then we can go from there. Well, hello, thanks for talking to me today. I started off as a speech and language therapist, uh, training in London at the Central School of Speech and Drama. And uh, I think you call them speech pathologists over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, while I was training, I got very interested in the work of Bevy Hornsby, who founded the dyslexia clinic in Bart's Hospital many years ago. And I was at the beginning of my career, and I won't say she was at the end, but there were quite a few years between us. And I got the opportunity to meet lots of people who were very eminent in the field of dyslexia. I then worked for the NHS, but they wanted me to work with preschool children and I wanted to work with school age children. So I resigned at a very early age and uh, approached the Dyslexia Teaching Centre, where I worked freelance again from a very young age. I realised I needed some sort of degree rather than a diploma, so I did my Masters in Human Communication, which actually was just a, a title above doing a Masters in Speech Therapy. And uh, after some experience um, working in schools, I founded my own centre, Emerson House, um, in West London. And there, um, with my colleagues, I worked um, with dyslexics, dyspraxics, um, and my colleagues worked with dyscalculia. But then I took over that branch of the work as well. So many books have been written about dyslexia that Um, There was obviously a huge need for more work with dyscalculia and we were very fortunate to meet Professor Brian Butterworth who is um, retired now or emeritus professor and um, so that set up a long-standing association. So um, I've taught children for many years um, but also lectured widely and now written books with my colleague Patricia Babti. Great, yeah. So you you have this this expertise, although I know you, you said you don't like the term expertise, right? You like to say, um, you know, experience. And I'm very experienced over a long time. Yeah, so you have a lot of experience with a lot of these different disorders. And so for the teachers and the parents who are listening, if you could talk a little bit about each of them and maybe sort of the key the key elements of, of each and how you might distinguish them and what, what they should be maybe concerned about or looking for practical advice along those lines that would be great I try and um, help um, teachers who have uh, children who perhaps present as a mystery to their teachers never mind their parents and uh, so I try and identify what the professionals and the parents should be most concerned about because they often walk in very generally anxious so I try and identify the main problem and it's good to start with the personality and the behavior of the young person always and out of that comes um, issues about impulsivity related to attention deficit disorder mm-hmm. and with hyperactivity. 
and I think that's crucial it underpins all learning anyway and so the parents are sometimes surprised that I'm so interested in their child's character but I do think it's crucial both at home and in the classroom and so then I try and um, differentiate between um, difficulties in the realms of dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia and see whether there are co-occurrences of these difficulties or whether it's an isolated problem and behind that it's very important to consider the intelligence level of the child not to judge them but to see whether they're achieving their potential or whether there's a discrepancy between what they're capable of achieving given the right early intervention if possible. Could we actually take a step back and talk about just the simple definitions or examples of dyslexia, dyspraxia and dyscalculia, those three terms? So let's take dyslexia first. Many children uh, may struggle with um, learning to read and again important to think about do they have um, good language skills to start with at a preschool level because if their oral language um, is poor then they're they might have trouble mapping their oral language onto reading. Um, Dyslexic children uh, are well known for having difficulties with learning phonetics, let's call them that, although the other term is phonological awareness, the ability to split words such as cat into the three component sounds. So their difficulties might be in that realm. Their difficulties might be with language, meaning vocabulary and grammar their difficulties might be with memory so that it might be short-term memory uh, working memory and problems getting the information that they're being taught into their long-term memory which they can then use to add to their knowledge dyslexia of course also affects spelling um, so that children who are poor at phonics might not even be able to spell phonetically. But many of the problems are also caused by poor visual recall, so that once spelling is no longer just phonetic, they have problems recalling the appearance of words as well. So some people think that's what dyslexia is only about. But it can have more pervasive problems in school because of the memory issue that I mentioned before. So typically children may have good oral skills and may participate in the classroom very well but then don't retain new information easily and so require more revision opportunities of overlearning and building on what they've learnt so that they can map new information onto that. Perhaps we could look now at dyscalculia. Some practices in schools rely on children learning information by rote and some children manage very well to learn facts but when they have to apply those facts to solve problems, number problems and word problems then it can become apparent that they don't really have a sense of number. Again, we go back to IQ, and I think common sense, having common sense about life is part of a child's IQ, 
And so it can be perplexing when you meet a child who does have lots of common sense about, say, crossing a road and can explain the dangers, and yet they can't see why two plus three must be one more than two plus two. They treat each problem as a new one and don't relate known facts to any unknown facts. I think in the cognitive literature we might talk about exemplar learners versus rule-based learners and individuals who kind of memorize different examples but aren't seeing the big connection uh, between them, at least not as much, versus students who get that underlying structure, that that rule, and the the literature suggests that getting that rule and grasping the underlying structure is is going to be very helpful. So it, it sounds like that's part of that might be part of this. Yes. So for example, children um, with good memories who perhaps are not dyslexic um, may learn their tables very successfully unlike dyslexics and uh, it becomes very clear that if you ask them just one more fact like what are 13 twos when in England we only learn up to 12 times two or 12 twos they have no idea that it's going to be only two more so that means that they've just learned by rote and haven't understood the concept Mm -hmm. and uh, so with dyscalculia I believe that from the from the first stages of becoming aware of quantities, then children should be taught with concrete materials such as Cuisinaire rods or base 10 materials where they can see that three is just one more than two using centimeter cubes, for example, Mm -hmm. at a very early stage. And then dyspraxia? In the UK, um, for many years, um, it became clear that parents and perhaps teachers couldn't fathom what exactly dyspraxia was. So it's described in these times as developmental coordination delay or disorder. A delay might imply that they might get there in the end, but they're delayed, whereas often those who suffer from the old-fashioned term of clumsy child syndrome, which obviously wouldn't be politically correct now, um, don't particularly grow out of dyspraxia. And I have had colleagues who can never learn to drive because they suffered from that condition, and they were phobic about using any uh, machines such as photocopiers and even phones. And I suppose if you're thinking of what people need to do in their lives, dyspraxics in the school setting can usually be identified by very poor handwriting and even if they learn cursive script they still can produce it very slowly or in a very poor manner so that it is very helpful if they learn to touch type as early as possible and so this frees up their mind to express their creative ideas and show their intelligence without having to struggle with the laborious task of fine motor coordination. The first thing that pops into my head is standardized testing and the ability to take a pencil and sort of fill in a very tiny little bubble that you might not perform very well on something like that if you're having difficulty with the motor function and that's taking up time and 
and motor coordination. And of course, it's not the test itself that we talk about that benefits memory. It's the bringing information to mind. And so if there is some other form of responding, you'd, you'd get the benefit and also, uh, you know, bringing the information to mind, but then also accurately assess what they know on a test like this. Have you run into anything like well, that? Well, certainly uh, one of the strong recommendations is in England, we say reasonable adjustments should be made, and that can be even moved into a legal term, so that some of children with dyspraxia can get a certificate to enable them to have a scribe to not only write for them, but perhaps also read for them if there's dyslexia involved as well. But the scribing is uh, remarkably important because suddenly they begin to do well in tests where they've always been bottom of the class and failed before. So. I suppose that's the obvious thing to work towards. I was actually a scribe for someone at university, which was great because I got to attend lots of lectures on law that wasn't my area, and it was very interesting for me as well as hopefully helping that student. It's quite an art to learn to be a scribe because obviously you're not allowed to give any information. You just have to make sure that the child understands that they're in charge, not you. So it's quite a skilled... um, thing to do for someone, particularly young children. But I always open my assessments with scribing for them. And obviously I'm not testing them, but I'm just investigating. And so many of them never mention full stops and you learn a lot from that because many dyslexics don't have a full idea of what actually constitutes a sentence um, because of their lack of awareness of some grammatical points and maybe some memory issues where they just keep talking and don't consider full stops, never mind commas, forget the commas. <laughs> I always chuckle a little bit when I hear full stop. I didn't know that, I, I knew what full stop was, but I didn't know that the term period was very different in the, the UK and the US. So of course I'm talking about punctuation. Yes. <laughs> so of course to end up with a scribe, a child needs to be recognized as having a specific type of difficulty. And so the the diagnostic piece or sort of noticing and then figuring out what those accommodations would be is is critical and it's better I'm assuming the younger the younger you can catch those types of of issues correct yes well certainly here we all work as part of a team and we rely very much on the chartered educational psychologists here who have the authority to recommend the accommodations to be set up mm-hmm. so um, I'm certainly part of the process of recommending that they are seen by such a person. As many parents um, don't really understand why it would be helpful to get an IQ test on their child, whereas that's only part of the assessment process with a chartered psychologist. So quite often I'm the person who recommends that they go and um, get some accommodations of of a scribe. I'm rather skeptical about allowing children to have extra time because the very children who are struggling don't really know what to do with the extra time. They may not be able to proofread their work if they're poor spellers. I made the mistake of asking a 16-year-old when I was only 18 um, how a word looked. Did it look okay or, or not? And she, she was highly intelligent and said that she was horrified that I'd asked her if the word looked right or not. She said, don't you understand my problem? I've no idea whether the word is right or wrong. I've no idea, don't you understand? And of course, I was at the beginning of my training. I realise now it was a very valid question. Can you proofread? 
you wouldn't use that term, but can you see what that word looks like? Does it look okay? And that's part of the assessment process to ask a child, are you happy with that? Does that look okay? Because often they stare at it after they've written it and then have another go. And that's a plus point because they've seen once they've written it that it doesn't look right. So that's an essential skill. Whereas teachers might just say, go away and look at your work and come back when you've improved it. So the extra time factor is not always helpful. So parents are very pleased to hear that, as sometimes they're fighting for the very thing that won't be that helpful. Never mind stigmatising the child when everybody else has finished their test or exam and they're left sitting there. So it, it, you have to really consider the pros and cons of these things. Yeah, so for the teachers and the parents listening, maybe you could give some, some advice and you know talk about sort of the ways you might approach learning and teaching with these children. Uh, you and I had mentioned earlier, we all had mentioned earlier, the kind of t- tailoring to their strengths versus sort of teaching to the weaknesses. And I thought maybe you could, you could talk a little bit about that as well. Well, I suppose the informed parents who've done a bit of background reading walk in and say, and do you, you use multi-sensory approaches? And so that's a signal that they have some understanding that in the first instance, I used to call it full information teaching, that I wouldn't deprive a child of some aspect of what they might need to know. But through working with a child in the initial stages, you work out what their specific areas of weakness are and indeed their strengths. And so without... um, ignoring any aspect of their learning potential one can adjust the teaching to play to their strengths and after all the children who make the most progress um, among those who have specific learning difficulties are those who learn in spite of their difficulties using compensatory routes and it's really not fair to deprive them of their very strong compensatory roots. And as far as phonological awareness, that is phonics, are concerned, then one can always uh, work on the phonics when you move on to spelling, because the phonics are so much an integral part of spelling, whereas reading can be acquired by many different roots, even in neurotypical learners. I realised when I entered this field that I had learnt completely visually to read. Someone told me what a word said and that was it. I knew it immediately. Obviously I wasn't dyslexic. But uh, some of the dyslexics can learn as easily as that. And so I very much focus my encoding work for spelling on phonics and then spelling rules, carefully selected spelling rules, so that they don't go on to overload with their somewhat vulnerable memories at times. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between what you just described and then what we hear about, talked about with respect to learning styles and how that's different? Because we often talk on our podcast and on our blog about this idea that catering to preferences about how you know, you and I like to learn isn't necessarily effective because there's no research that's showing that just because someone prefers to, you know, listen to a podcast or watch a video, they're going to learn better from it than from reading. How is that different to when students have special needs that uh, require them to be taught in a different way? Many parents do walk in and say, oh, my child's a very visual learner. Push them on that. 
but it is true that if you're teaching a child by talking to them um, it's very helpful to supply additional visual material um, such as a picture or as I mentioned before real objects such as counters or glass nuggets for maths or pictures linked to sounds or pictures linked to words so the whole thing we're back to teaching in a multi-sensory way and I was able to experience this directly when I had trouble learning languages so I may be a well compensated dyslexic but I don't believe so and the British Dyslexia Association uh, told me that I wasn't dyslexic but I still had severe trouble learning other languages until I was immersed in Spanish when I lived in South America so uh, I think I'm overthinking this because it's my field but it did show me um, that I needed to learn by hearing and seeing the words um, because I met some children on the beach who could learn English just by chatting to tourists and I was full of amazement whereas I couldn't do that it sounded like gobbledygook when I heard a foreign language at first so I needed to map the written word back to my spoken sound system before I could learn a language. So I don't think it's just the children with specific learning difficulties that have different learning styles. I think we all do and I suppose it would help to train parents and teachers to be more aware of these different preferences that I believe that we all have but perhaps are exaggerated in children with specific learning vulnerabilities. Yeah, we certainly have preferences, right? The the issue with the learning styles myth isn't isn't whether or not we have preferences. It's more if we cater to a student's preference, is that going to lead to more learning? And the evidence really says no. Just because a student really likes watching videos doesn't mean they can't learn by reading and shouldn't read by learning. But the idea is by combining all of these different methodologies, we can learn better. And really areas, I think, areas have learning styles, right? So you could try to imagine learning a language with only reading and never being allowed to speak or hear it would be very difficult. Try to learn how to ride a bike by just reading a book or hearing someone explain it that would be very difficult. Um, and so I think in, in that way, we might have preferences, but we should be catering both to the things that we like and the things that we are good at, but also to some of those weaknesses as well, to try to train those weaknesses and, and combine. And that's one approach. And I think the other important factor that you mentioned is the difficulty. So if a particular subject area or content uh, or concept even is difficult for anyone, a given student, child, with or without special needs, then adding information in a different modality, whether it's adding visuals or adding physical object or adding a video, is going to be helpful in developing that understanding about the concept versus giving more and more abstract verbal information, right? I see a lot of parents who um, play um, CDs in the car or whatever they are these days from our phones on Audible etc and I try and encourage them to when the child's old enough to keep up that marvellous habit which enriches their oral language skills but then to maybe get copies of the book that is being read to them by ear 
and uh, maybe read a sentence each pointing with a pencil above the words so that they're um, even if they're not uh, keen to read out loud they're still hearing the words read but actually seeing the words as well at the same time which um, the human brain is is so amazing that it can do more than one thing at once and uh, if we're working across modalities then that enriches the experience and we believe that it increases learning and uh, I think that's what we've been talking about today. So if you had one sort of key takeaway, one message to give to teachers or or parents maybe and or sort of what would be your one one takeaway one practical application from your work i think for for reading um it's very helpful if you help a child enter a certain genre um the the fad is often to um give child a child a wide variety of reading materials but in fact in the first instance it's quite good to capture the life and character of a character in a village so that they get to know who's going to be in the story and uh, how they're going to react to situations and very often the parents um, feel oh dear they can only read those books and no others but that's always a very important stepping stone into changing into a different genre for spelling I would say that it's really important um, to uh, combine um, hearing words with seeing words and of course I go back to the touch typing um, where there's an, a fantastic blog um, uh, produced by touch type read and spell in the UK which indeed teaches in a very multi-sensory way so the children are seeing the word hearing the word typing the word checking the word recalling the word and that seems to be marvelous for spelling as far as maths goes multi-sensory materials, concrete materials to demonstrate what's being said and worked upon so that children can develop quantitative reasoning. And then to sort of wrap up, could you maybe explain some of the resources that, you, that you've come across, resources that are your own or that you've, you've uh, come across that might help? Well, a unique um, approach to developing um, quantitative quantitative awareness, uh, noticing quantities and the differences between quantities is the use of the dot patterns that you find on a dice. Um, and then the numbers above six from the usual dice that we all hopefully use for snakes and ladders. Um, so seven, eight, nine and ten can be made of the of using two dice um, so that children build up a visual image. And certainly, um, my colleague Dorian Yeo, uh, the late Dorian Yeo, she developed the use of the dot patterns, um, and um, we still use those today. And um, I would say that's the most unique thing that I've worked on for many years, uh, which has brought the most success in developing children's number sense. And you have a Facebook. Page, is that correct? Yes, I'm a, a happy user of Facebook um, and I do have um, a facility to um, post things on my Jane Emerson Send Advisor page 
and I generally um, send articles that are, are of academic or educational interest to that page um, and put a short response to that um, and um, I have had positive feedback that people find those articles very interesting if they're if they want to know more about learning and specific learning difficulties. Great, yeah, and we can link to that on the show notes. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you that you want to say or something we didn't touch on? Well, I suppose I have written um, several books about dyscalculia. Um, the dyscalculia assessment was the first, and the second was the dyscalculia solution. It's not just about the labels, um, but you need strong labels for books and it just opens people's um, interest into a broader subject of learning difficulties. Thank you, Thank so, you so much. You just said that in unison. <laughs> Thank you so much um, for, for talking with us today. This yes. is great. Thank you, it's very interesting. It was my pleasure. The Learning Scientist podcast is funded by The Wellcome Trust and listeners like you. 